people who have more superficial relationships with other people, they're not willing to ask the hard questions mm -hmm. and to address the elephant in the room. But if you know somebody really well, you're comfortable asking the hard questions and bringing up that elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. And I think that this isn't the Christian life of discipleship is an invitation into the harder conversations and questions in wrestling mm -hmm. with scripture. We shouldn't be afraid of it. Uh, we shouldn't think of it as a bug. It is a feature. It is an invitation to grow in discipleship and community. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Things You Don't Hear in Church podcast. My name is Ethan. And my name is Derry. And guys, go check us out on social media. We're on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, TikTok, uh, Rumble, but we got like one view per video there. You know, like, There's like three people on <laughs> Rumble. Rumble yeah. We have one third of the Rumble audience watching us. <laughs> um, if you notice, I'm sweating like a Pentecostal preacher out here in a room with no AC, but it's going to be a good time. It's hot today. Yeah, um, but we have an amazing guest, and it's going to be a really good show. Yeah, guys, so today, again, returning, we have Dr. Randall Rouser. Randall Rouser, I can't speak either. It's the heat. Um, uh, he's a Canadian theologian who serves as an associate professor of historical theology at Taylor Seminary. I think that's still true. Um, and he's got a lot of awesome books. We've had him on the show before. Um, we really hi highly recommend you pick up some of his books. He also has uh, a YouTube channel. He's on Twitter all the time. Um, and he, he appears on a lot of our favorite YouTube channels as well. So I mm -hmm. want to have him on the show today because of a, a Twitter conversation we saw. Um, but before we get into that, Randall, is there anything we missed? Anything you want to plug at all? Uh, well, I would just say I'm actually not a professor anymore. I've left the, mm. the academy. I'm now a full-time investigator. Whoa. An investigator like a crim criminal investigator? Like a workplace investigator. And my, my special bellywick is... Uh, church-related or faith-based investigations. I work for a hmm. group called Veritas Solutions in Edmonton, Canada, but we do investigations across Canada. Wow, what does that look hmm. like? Yeah, well, I've been doing it part-time for about four years. Um, and so I started full-time on that beginning of July, actually. Hmm. Wow. So, what is we're that not here of... to talk about that. <laughs> I just, that's a fascinating uh, job. That's interesting. All right, cool. Mm -hmm. Well, um, we wanted to have you on the show because we saw an interaction that you had had um, with Mike Winger, uh, and you guys go back and forth sometimes. Let me comment on some of his stuff and back and forth. But mm -hmm. um, he asked everybody on Twitter what their favorite psalm was, and you responded with uh, Psalms 137, and that says, Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. <laughs> and uh, and we just want you to explain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, the rest of your tweet said, it forces me to see that the Bible ain't a simple moral handbook for life. Some of the views of biblical authors are morally debased um, and morally engaged readers must call them out. And so we wanted to have a conversation about where is that line when it comes to biblical authors and their, uh, their perceived or their given morality um, and it comes to them still being inspired word of God, right? Where is that line drawn? How do we wrestle with that? Those kind of things. Does that make sense? That makes sense. That sure makes sense. Yep. Yeah, because a lot of people, I think, going into this, and a lot of the, the Twitter thread after that was like people on one side saying, oh, you don't believe in the Bible if you believe this, and other people trying to engage and saying, well, where's the line then? Or what's the context? All that kind of stuff. People just wrestling with it. Um, I think the immediate reaction of some people when you say that some biblical authors may not have um, the best uh, morality or moral or ethical guidelines that they're following, at least not the ones we follow today, um, they might think, 
how is that possible? These people mm-hmm. are inspired by God, writing the Bible. This is like a divine text. They have to have perfect morality. And if they don't, there's something wrong with the book or wrong with the person. And how can I believe this? And there starts to be kind of a freak out mm-hmm. that they might have. Um, and so that's like one of the responses. But we wanted to get into the more nuanced areas there because uh, we're obviously both still Christians and you are too. Um, and we want to wrestle with this passage. So how would you handle this Bible verse? I think we need to do some uh, laying of foundations first. Hmm. So uh, I like the way you put it in terms of wrestling. I think that this is important at the outset. And while I was a professor for years, it's very important for me as a professor, not just to give people a fish as a word, but to teach them how to fish, hmm. not just to give them quick answers as to what I think the right way to think about something is, but rather give them tools to wrestle with things. And that's a general approach to education. Uh, and so sometimes I will get people like on Twitter or other places where they're like, they, they want and expect and demand that you're going to present just what your view on X or Y is right away, hmm. uh, rather than being provocative about something, stirring the pot a little bit to get people to think. And that Mm. was the the point in context, first of all, of that tweet. Uh, Now, beyond that, uh, in terms of wrestling, I think we also have to appreciate that we are part of Israel. And Mm. the name Israel, so this comes from Jacob. Uh, He wrestled with the angel through the night, and he was given the name Israel as he who has strived with God. Hmm. And so that's what it is to be Israel, is to be willing to strive with God. And we, likewise, as we are grafted into Israel, sorry, but my, one of my dogs is barking right now. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, that's the, the joys of suburban life. But as we are grafted, <laughs> as we are grafted into Israel, we are called to uh, wrestle much in the way that Jacob wrestled with God. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are invited as we read scripture to wrestle with God. And the dogs are going to settle down in just a moment here. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, dealing with them. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. As, yeah. as, as a sort of a initial laying of foundations? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay. So now to talk generally about the Bible and inspiration for a moment. Hmm. See, yeah, when I was growing up, I was had a very sort of flat view of what inspiration is. The first thing I think in this sort of flat view is that inspiration involves God taking control almost of every human author and they are like his mouthpiece. Right. So whatever <laughs> they say is exactly what God is saying. Whatever they endorse is exactly what God is endorsing. <laughs> and I think that there are actually enormous problems with that view. In fact, I think it's indefensible if you think about it for very long. Hmm. Just one obvious problem with that view is that fundamental to thinking about the Bible, actually, for any Christian, is the concept of accommodation, Hmm. which is the idea that God meets people where they are at. And this includes the biblical authors. He meets them in the understanding that they have at their space and time in history. He accommodates to them. Hmm. So you read Genesis chapter 1, it is an account of creation, but it's not an account of creation in the terms that we would write it in the 21st century. Hmm. It is an account that is written within the thought forms and the framework and the worldview of an ancient Near Eastern perspective on things. God accommodated to the ancient Near Eastern perspective. That was what they understood. And in that context, he reveals the doctrine of creation to them. 
if he were to have revealed the Bible in the 21st century, Genesis chapter one would have looked different. It would have mm -hmm. used different categories because he would have been accommodating to a 21st century perspective on things. If God were to have revealed himself in 3000 uh, AD, right? Mm. Of course, that would mean it wouldn't be 3000 AD. It would be one AD, but you get the point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, regardless, the idea there is that, again, there would be a different science at play that God would be accommodating to. So that's just an example. Now, there's also theological accommodation. This is quite mm. clear because in the, the ancient Hebrews were polytheists. And so when you read something like in the uh, Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me, that's not just a metaphor for don't treat your favorite sports car as your god. Don't treat your favorite you know, football or whatever as your god. That's actually literally have no other gods before me. Mm -hmm. And gradually, the ancient Hebrews became henotheists, which means mm -hmm. that they began to view one god, Yahweh, as supreme over the other gods. And at some point, perhaps it is in Deutero-Isaiah, so Isaiah 40 to 48 reflects a changing theology where the Hebrews are becoming more overtly monotheists. We don't know when that happened exactly, but we do know that by the first century, for sure, the Jews had become monotheists. Right. So we read in James chapter two uh, that even the demons believe there is one God and they shudder. But mm. that wasn't something that Abraham accepted. Abraham huh. came out of a polytheistic context. So when you have the older writings in the Hebrew scriptures are gonna theologically reflect an ancient or Eastern understanding of a polytheistic world and one God, Yahweh, being supreme over the other gods. Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually we come to monotheism. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we get protean Trinitarian categories, which will only be clarified by the time you get into the fourth century AD in councils like Nicaea and Constantinople. Mm. So uh, you can't assume Abraham or Moses were Trinitarian Christians. They weren't. What? They had a particular theological <laughs> understanding. It is true. Yeah. Um, and so with all of that, I've just talked about the accommodation to science and the accommodation to theological perspective is mm. the same when it comes to morality. God accommodates to the morality of various human authors, including some of the stuff that seems to be going on in uh, Psalm uh, 137. Hmm. Very interesting. And now we can go into, yeah, we can go to more depth on that, but that's just, again, a, a foundation for how you can't assume that the perspective of a human author is just the same thing as the divine author. Hmm. Uh, yeah. But actually, let me just add now one more important caveat, and then I'll be quiet for a minute. And that important caveat is, this is not to deny in any respect plenary inspiration or the inspiration of all scripture. Hmm. Rather, what it is to do is to frame or contextualize or qualify what it means for all scripture to be inspired. And so what it means mm -hmm. is, uh, it, it means you can't accept that old view that I grew up with as a kid, which is that whatever a human author says, God just identifies with that exact statement. What it does mean, however, that whatever is in the Bible is something that God has put there for a reason. It doesn't hmm. necessarily mean he's endorsing it, but it means he has put it there for a reason. And I think that Paul gives us an excellent guide in 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. The gist of this, I'll go from verse 16, is that all scriptures God breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness to equip us for every good work. Now, to, every good work is to follow Christ, right? To become like Christ. 
So the gist of what Paul is saying there is that any passage in scripture is put there to make us more like Jesus. That's mm. different than saying every passage in scripture is put there because God perfectly agrees with the perspective of the human author. Mm-hmm. Those are two different claims. Maybe God doesn't identify with everything the human author says, but God still put that text in there. So in our wrestling with it, we can become more like Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting that there's that worldview that everything in the Bible was like kind of how like what's called automatic writing, at least Mm. in the occult, is where they claim they open themselves up to demons and the demons tell them what to say and they write it verbatim. It sounds like people think the Bible came about through like, you know, godly automatic writing, which I never like contemplated when I was younger how the Bible came about. But I just assumed people just wrote these books about God. And it just so happened that coincidentally, also the Holy Spirit was behind that, but they weren't necessarily aware of what was happening in the moment. And so it's interesting that people think that, yeah, everything is there. But if everything is supposed to point us to Christ, when it comes to that verse that we're discussing today, specifically in the Psalms about dashing their children on the rocks, Mm. the question then is like, well, how does that point us to Christ? Mm. Yeah. So I have, uh, I would recommend uh, if people want to read more about my views on this within the context of my broader treatment of biblical violence, I would recommend my book, Jesus Loves Canaanites. Hmm. Uh, But specifically for the verse and for that chapter. uh, So the first thing I want to say is, is that we have to read, well, first of all, in a way that is that that we're not denying what our fundamental moral knowledge is. Like sometimes Hmm. I will see Christians that tie themselves into ethical pretzels trying to justify that sometimes under some conditions it is morally praiseworthy or right to wish that the babies of your enemies are dashed against the rocks right yeah it's um, a pretty brutal take it is and they're but they're forced into that take by this kind of assumption that i was talking about at the outset hmm. so i think we we kind of have to call that out that just doesn't work hmm. so hmm. then how do you think about it uh, there have been various views, proposals on this. C.S. Lewis um, won't talk. Well, he he is a, a he kind of allegorizes it. He says, well, maybe we should think about the babies uh, spiritually as like sinful impulses. And if you allow a sinful impulse to grow within you, then that's really bad. So we should hmm. eradicate sinful impulses. I don't really personally think that's very attractive as an option. Hmm. Here's what I would suggest for for a passage like that, reading it in the way that makes us more like Jesus. So first of all, I'll say this, borrowing from St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, always read scripture so as to increase your love of God and neighbor. Hmm. I think that's, I mean, that is rooted in what Jesus said is the fundamental law to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you are reading scripture in a way that increases your love of God and or neighbor, all things being equal, you're reading it well. But if you're reading scripture in a way that alienates you from God or your neighbor or increases your your hatred or your distrust of God or your neighbor, then you're not reading it well. Hmm. Uh, And so if you're going to go, for example, and try to justify dashing babies into rocks, you're not reading it well, clearly. Okay, Hmm. so uh, the next thing I want to do is say, now let's pause and be careful about just careless proof texting. Um, And that happens, for example, when you take a verse and take it out of its context and you don't pay attention to what's going on around it. Of course. So if if we were to take, and and I won't take the time now to read all of Psalm 137, but if we were to to read all of Psalm 137, 
it's pretty clear this psalm is written as a lament hmm. for people who have been forced into exile after the destruction of Jerusalem. They've been exiled into the kingdom of Babylon, right? And here, this is, I would say, what you could call a genocide that the Israelites hmm. have just experienced. It's right. an attempt, in other words, to destroy their culture. Uh, genocide is not just about killing people. In fact, ultimately, genocide is about trying to eradicate or destroy a culture yeah. or a religious or ethnic identity as such. And that's what the Babylonians are trying to do here. They've destroyed Jerusalem and they've now forcibly resettling the Israelites into different parts of Babylon with the hope and intent that they will become assimilated and lose their identity as a people. Hmm. Uh, and of course, the, the trauma and the the sense of outrage and anguish that hmm. people would experience in that moment, I think it's tough for us to try to even begin to get our minds around. And that is the position of this author hmm. who's so outraged at what has happened to them and their people at the hands of the Babylonians. So then they lament and then they shift at the end from a lament to an imprecation, which is a curse. And hmm. it includes, yeah, I want to take their babies and smash them against the rocks. And I will just say, uh, I think it changes things if you read the psalm with that perspective of, hmm. uh, well, what why, what caused this person to say this kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. there, and so in my book, uh, uh, Jesus Loves Canaanites, I give an example of this. Uh, I don't remember all the details off hand now but the gist of it is this a few years ago here in canada where i live there was a automotive automobile accident this guy a really rich guy i believe his last name was demarco he was mm. driving home in his ferrari at like 4 a.m coming back from a bender or 6 a.m still drunk mm. and he drove directly into a minivan being driven by a grandfather driving his three or four grandkids oh. and the grandfather and all the kids were killed and the the punk driving the Ferrari is fine. Hmm. So he is sentenced for vehicular manslaughter or something. And the mother, uh, Jennifer Neville Lake was her name. Hmm. She speaks and gives a witness impact statement at trial. And at trial, she says, I would not wish the pain that I experienced in anyone but you. You deserve to know exactly what it is like to lose every person you've ever loved. Wow. Now, if I heard someone say that with no context to another person, I'd be like, oh, that's horrible. How dare you say that? That's a cruel, mean thing to say. Mm. If I read it in the context of a mother's heart cry when she has lost her father and all her babies because of this guy driving home drunk, it completely transforms her words. Mm -hmm. The important thing to recognize there, it doesn't make her words good. It makes them human and real and perfectly understandable. Mm, yeah. And this is, I think, uh, the first of two things I'd want to say about the psalm. First thing is identification. Read the psalm and find yourself in it. Mm. So are there times when you've been hurt, when you've wanted to lash out, when you've been in deep anguish and pain? You can find yourself in the psalms. You can find yourself in Psalm 137 with that person crying out in exile wanting to visit back to their oppressors twice as much as they've received. Hmm. Uh, and the last thing I'll just say about it is we, while we should read to identify with the psalmist in their anguish and pain and suffering, 
we should also ultimately read through a Christological lens, mm. read from the perspective of Jesus. And so that should lead us ultimately from not just identification with the psalmist, but transformation in Christ. Hmm. Because it is Jesus who said in the Sermon on the Mount, it has been said, hate your enemies. He could have just as well said, it has been said, dash their babies against the rocks. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Mm -hmm. So we read the psalm attentive to its historical context and identify with the pain and anguish of the psalmist in context. We find ourselves in that story, but within the whole canon of scripture, we're ultimately called to read transformationally so that we don't remain there. Now, I don't know how long a person will hate a, another person who's offended against them in the way that the Babylonians offended against the Israelites or the way mm. this drunk driver offended against Jennifer Neville Lake and her family. I don't know how long that process of healing would ever take. Can't begin to imagine. But you can't remain hating your enemy forever. Mm. So even if it is part of the journey, Christ calls us to move in our lives on a trajectory of forgiveness and restoration. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, that was a really great take on the under like the courtroom situation and understanding like hearing that woman knowing what she's been through you can empathize and be like i mean yeah i'd probably feel the same way yeah absolutely. and so i i do i yeah as you're talking i'm like oh yeah i've never paid that close attention to the context in which that psalm was written hmm. when and that yeah, does make it a lot more digestible and understandable because hmm. people do attack the bible all the time saying like it's it calls for this and it calls for that and mm -hmm. this is an evil god you serve but yeah, they don't, if they don't take the time to understand that, if we don't take the time to understand that, then we're missing out on what's truly being communicated. Hmm. Yeah. I guess my next question then from that would be, how do we understand the places in the Bible that may, or I guess, where's the line in the Bible of what we choose to accept morally and not accept morally, right? Because obviously to our standards, like this is something that's bad, but there's lots of things in the culture around us that they would consider like morally adherent, right? In the Bible. And we wouldn't as Christians. And there's sort of that like back and forth. So where do we draw the line of how we can understand in the Bible what is good to take from the authors morally and what isn't? Where do we find that line? Is it just context? Do you have any thoughts on that? It's a scary question, mm -hmm. to be honest, especially if you've been raised with a particular understanding of how to read things and you now realize it's a lot more complicated than you thought. Hmm. I mean, I mean, when you consider, well, I can't just assume, like, I'll just say this. So I grew up as a fundagelical, you know, which hmm. is a, a portmanteau of fundamentalist and evangelical. I think there are a lot right. of Christians that sort of find themselves identifying or resonating both with fundamentalist and evangelical, which really overlap in many respects. Hmm. One key hallmark of that tradition is a take on hermeneutics or Bible interpretation that says you should always uh, interpret by following the plain meaning of the text. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, that's great if there is a plain meaning of the text. The problem is that to assume, let's say, as a 21st century reader, reading a text that was written two to 3,000 years before in a completely different socio-historical context and in a different language. And to assume that what seems to you to be the obvious meaning is just going to be the same obvious meaning to that reader two to 3,000 years ago in a completely different socio-historical context 
in a completely different language <laughs> is grossly naive. Yeah. Uh, we need to recognize. Yeah, you've got someone coming. No, you got it. Go on. Okay. Well, I got dogs bark and you got doors knocking. <laughs> yeah. Good at both ends. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, it's uh, for some people to recognize that uh, it's actually that there is no one size fits all hermeneutic can be hmm. very disconcerting. But what it means is you have to pay attention to each book that you're reading. Try to understand what kind of genre this is, what is the socio-historical context of it, yeah. uh, what are some other lenses that I need to put to it in order to understand it better. And yeah, it is complicated. Um, and we do need to draw upon sometimes a wide variety of sources hmm. in order to interpret and understand. So we were talking about Genesis chapter one. It could be that natural science is going to have something to say about things like the age of the earth uh, hmm. or the origin of life on earth and we need to bring the things we can learn from science into creative dialogue with our readings of scripture hmm. all scripture i mean all truth is god's truth from a christian's perspective so yeah. ultimately there are no contradictions when scripture hmm. is interpreted rightly but science mm -hmm. can show us the flaws of some interpretations it's the same thing when it comes to history or textual criticism or ethics. Hmm. Um, so all of these things, um, we, we need to kind of, uh, what I like to, to use as a as this big term, reflective equilibrium, which is this idea that we're drawing upon a wide variety of sources when we're doing theological critical reflection and scripture reading and together in community, we're drawing upon all these sources to try to arrive at the correct interpretations of hmm. these things. Um, but hmm. it's not always easy. Yeah. So um, I wish it was. But again, I think this actually is uh, indicative of uh, maybe the fact that God does value this whole thing of being Israel, hmm. this whole thing of wrestling with him. Um, I find that often people who have more superficial relationships with other people, they're not willing to ask the hard questions mm -hmm. and to address the elephant in the room. But if you know somebody really well, you're comfortable asking the hard questions and bringing up that elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. And I think that this isn't the Christian life of discipleship is an invitation into the harder conversations and questions in wrestling mm -hmm. with scripture. We shouldn't be afraid of it. Uh, we shouldn't think of it as a bug. It is a feature. It is an invitation to grow in discipleship and community. Yeah. I really like that idea of wrestling with God. There was a couple months ago I was thinking about that and realized that if you think about wrestling and what it actually is, it actually, when you extrapolate it out, it becomes this beautiful picture of like, yeah, wrestling with hard questions or dealing with hard things because a wrestling match necessarily means two parties being vulnerable and or consenting and willing to engage in this difficult task where you're trying to cut to like dominate the other person but it's a it's, it's a willing thing you know you don't see two people just fighting in the street and say oh they're wrestling it's like no they're having a fight that's a brawl that's different mm -hmm. one they're not really it's not sport it's not comrade camaraderie but wrestling is for sport for camaraderie and if you have someone who's a good wrestler and you're a good wrestler and you're sparring together you can you you know how to push each other in the way that ultimately helps each other grow, you know, and uh, and then in nature of people if things are like wrestling with each other or whenever you wrestle, 
a person, you find out who the stronger person is, mm. and usually you find a lot more respect for whoever won. And mm. so when we wrestle with God, God's always going to win. And so in wrestling, we learn respect and humility before mm. God because, and, yeah. and He wants us to engage in that wrestle. He's not mad at us for wrestling, but that's where we kind of learn a little bit of our humanness and understanding and like, okay, like, I get this a little bit more. Hmm. And I think it's a continued process through life in different seasons. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I want to get a little bit deeper into just some of these lines. I only have a few minutes left. Yeah. But I think someone might be thinking, listening to this, well, if there's an an author in the Bible that believes something that I don't believe morally, um, and we talked about this a bit, um, but it's still divinely inspired, um, what are other places in the Bible I can look and say, well, that person may not agree with my morality, but they're still divinely inspired. Who do I trust, their morality or my morality? And I can look around other places in the Bible and find like uh, maybe not proof text, but things I can bounce off of, like mm-hmm. uh, like mm-hmm. the love your neighbor passage we talked about to see if we're reading scripture correctly. Um, but if we talk about people like Paul, like Paul is someone who has a lot of moral judgments he hands down. And sometimes he says, well, this is my opinion. And sometimes he says, well, this is from the Lord. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's there's things that he says we can go to like uh, the Levitical laws and places like in Leviticus 29, where it says that um, if people disrespect their parents and dishonor them, that they should be stoned, too. And obviously, we don't agree with that morality. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we find a a couple more tools to see what is and what isn't uh, correct morality from the author of the book we're looking at? for Paul's example, maybe something's his opinion. Do we have to follow it if it's his opinion? Or for the Israelites in the Levitical laws, if they have this standard of morality that we clearly don't have today, we can talk about the law and what we're bound to and what we're not bound to and all mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, when is it okay to disregard? When is it not okay to disregard? Is it just of Yahweh's voice is speaking? Or is it easier to disregard if just a human is speaking? Mm-hmm. And what if the human is quoting Old, text- Old Testament law? You know, like... Is there any more guidelines? I know this is complicated and nuanced, but is there any more simple guidelines we can give to people to help them figure out this like more complex topic? The first thing I would say is uh, I talked about a Christological lens, hmm. and I think that we should really spend a lot of time understanding who Jesus is revealed to be in the Gospels, how he hmm. interacted with people, and there's this whole um, there's this description of, of how a bank teller learns how to discern true money from counterfeit is you got to spend a lot of time with the true money and you just know mm. the feel of it so when you encounter the, the counterfeit bills you... oh it looks like the audio cut out Um, yeah, it looks like uh, we had a little technical difficulty here with Randall's connection. But um, do you know that that the thing he's talking about? As I you want to extrapolate yeah, on that? Yeah, we can just cut it out and add it when he comes back. You still there, Randall? Yeah, can you hear me now? Oh, there we are. There we are. Yeah, 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 you're talking about the knowing real money thing. Mm. Okay. Yeah, man, that was am- everything I said right after that was so amazing. But I can't yeah, remember I said But but this idea that that you just know the real thing when you've because you've spent so much time around it hmm. and just you spend a lot of time with who Jesus is revealed to be and it's a good guide right for hmm. for when you're reading some of the problematic and challenging passages of scripture so that's a I mean first thing I would say 
Another thing I would say, like to, to let's give a concrete example here. Some years ago, William Webb is a biblical scholar. He wrote a book mm. called Corporal Punishment in the Bible. Mm. He was he was raised with, I think, something like the view I described, where if the biblical author endorses it, then you do it. And so one of the things that he, like a lot of Christians have been raised with, is a recognition of corporal punishment or physically hitting children as a means of discipline. Mm. Um, and he discovered, however, uh, when his one of his children who had a mental disability was in his upper teens, he was still trying to spank him to get him to do things. And he just talked about how both of there was a deep moral sense that what he was doing was wrong. Mm. And also, just empirically, it wasn't modifying his child's behavior in any productive way. And that was a catalyst for him to begin to reflect on this. Uh, he ended up concluding that corporal punishment is uh, wrong. It's not a good way to discipline and raise your children, ultimately, which is a consensus today among mm. psychologists in how you, you should raise children is you should not hit them. There are there are different positive ways to to raise your children. So like I, I grew up. Uh, we got get hit and spanked and, um, you know, occasionally got a stick or something on the rear end, that kind of mm. thing. I don't think we ever got like uh, any leather. Well, I don't know. Maybe we had a belt. I can't remember. Mm. But but of course, that was part of the culture that I grew up in in the 70s. Every every kid, right, was spanked and hit. And your your teachers, when they were angry, they threw chalk and erasers at you. And that was all just part of the culture. But actually, that's you don't need to find recourse to violence. So that was the first thing. But the second thing is that Webb also realized that the kind of corporal punishment he'd been raised with uh, was not actually what the biblical authors taught. Hmm. What he'd been raised with and what was popularized by Focus on the Family, for example, was spanking a young child on the bottom a couple times. But what the biblical authors talked about was hitting children up to young adults as well as slaves, full-grown slaves, which, of course, we don't have anymore. Mm. Uh, whole another ethical issue there to have a conversation mm. about. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, to hit them with something called a sabbat, which is like a hickory switch, on the back, do so in anger, up to 40 lashes and leaving scars. Mm. And that is the kind of thing. Now, here's the ironic thing that Webb talked about having students at his seminary coming from Africa where they consistently applied biblical teaching on corporal punishment. Wow. And he talked about this one student named Fanosi. And when he was doing research for this book, Fanosi said to him, you need to write this book. And then he lifted up his shirt and the back of his, uh, his whole back had like scars from, oh, from all the lashes that he had received growing Jeez. up from people who were being biblical. Hmm. So um, you bring these things together and William Webb has to say, not only is spanking not the best way to raise your kids, but the biblical authors were never endorsing focus on the family spanking. They were endorsing beating, which mm. we, you'd get arrested for today. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do we decide in that case that we have to diverge from what the biblical authors were endorsing? Mm. I mean, I'll say three things here. First of all, um, we're applying, I think, often our moral intuitions, which are not infallible, but they're yeah. definitely a source of knowledge about the world. And if something to you very deeply says, this is just seems wrong to me, all things being equal, you should listen to that moral voice within. Mm. And if you're trying to steal your nerves to hit your child, 
probably that's a good sign that that's not the way to to punish them. Hmm. Uh, second thing is it's also borne out by empirical scientific evidence that that's not the best way to raise your children. Hmm. So you bring those two things together. And then what that does in terms of this process of reflective equilibrium I talked about is it forces you to go back to the biblical authors and say, I think they were wrong about that. Now, the point is this. When people sometimes they assume, well, the Bible is like to be a handbook for life. And so the Bible is like the perfect guide for how to raise your kids. That's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to make you like Jesus. It's not to teach you all the best child parenting practices. Mm-hmm. So if, if you bring the wrong expectation to the Bible, you will be disappointed and you you will end up making some big mistakes. That's good. And if you think that what the biblical authors have to say about about uh, child discipline is always the right thing to do, then you, I think, will make some big mistakes. What mm-hmm. you have to do is read the Bible to the end of becoming like Christ. And in this case, I think that involves stepping away from what some of the biblical authors have to say about corporal punishment. Hmm. Very good. Yeah. I know we can talk about this for hours more, um, but we're running out of time. Um, so thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, is there anything you want to plug before we go? Any new books or anything people could find you at? Uh, my most recent book came out in, uh, I think, January or February of this year. Uh, mm. It's called The Doubter's Creed. Mm. So I would definitely recommend that uh, to anybody who's interested uh, if they've ever had a, if they ever ever wanted to become a Christian, but they had real doubts that they thought were stumbling blocks, or if they are now Christians, but they have deep doubts, this mm-hmm. is a book written for those kinds of people. And then again, if you want to read more in terms of the theological and hermeneutical and ethical questions that we've been talking about, I have discussed a lot of those at length in my book, Jesus Loves Canaanites, reading the Bible in light of moral intuition. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, well, Randall, thanks so much for coming on again. We always mm-hmm. love talking to you. It's been insightful. Um, we've learned a lot, and I know I have a lot to, to mull over in my own mind um, when it comes to this interpretive style. So, mm-hmm. yeah, thanks so much for coming on. You bet. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a good day. Absolutely. Shoots. Everybody else, have a good week.